Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. And today uh, I am going to do a part two from last week. We talked about teams that embrace rhythms and limits, part one last week. Uh, but I realized there was so much in that uh, topic. Uh, this is such a critical theme for all of us uh, going into the future that it deserved and merited a part two. And uh, so last week we talked about Genesis 2.15, that at the heart of original sin is a refusal to accept or embrace rhythms. And uh, the whole story of Adam in the garden, when God sets him up and, and Eve up, and then he puts the tree right, this tree right in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and says, you know, eat from any tree alike, but, but not this one. And, and the tree confronted them head on with the authority of God that they would simply trust him and embrace their limits uh, of not eating from that tree. And so there was this, this theme, this rhythm set up of, of, for them of accomplishing and doing and filling the earth and uh, you know, taking dominion over it, then they were to trust and surrender. They were to be active and passive, doing and then being, uh, work, Sabbath, this whole rhythm that active, contemplative, that we're all called by God to engage in. In fact, this rhythm is found in all of life. And we talked about from seasons to tides to uh, you know, light and darkness, and that Jesus had a deeper rhythm in his own life and uh, where he would stop and go into a quiet place and, and pray. And that this issue of rhythms and limits just theologically is at the heart of spiritual warfare. And we see this in Matthew 4 when Jesus, our second Adam, actually embraces limits, embraces rhythms, uh, and where the devil tries to get him to turn stones into bread or jump off the top of the temple or quickly just bow to him for a second to, to accomplish all of salvation for the world, basically to grasp. Uh, but rather Jesus embraced the rhythm, had limits, and said no, and trusted the Father's timing and the Father's plan uh, and walked down from the temple and, 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 and again, quoting scripture, was able to uh, embrace limits and uh, it's a beautiful contrast of Genesis 2 and 3 and uh, Matthew 4 or Luke 4. And so uh, our rebellious, disordered nature uh, hates stopping, hates surrender, uh, even though that's part of God's image in us. And so uh, I think I mentioned last week just the, the, the idea of a weekly rhythm on Sabbath, why it's so, you know, it strikes at the heart of our spirituality uh, such an important spiritual practice, uh, as well as a daily rhythm with daily offices, or almost function, almost function as mini sabbaths. And uh, and then I ended that podcast by just talking about limits and uh, the gift of God in limits. How God comes disguised to us through our limits, and limits purge us and teach us to trust Him like nothing else. And uh, and and so again, we've set up these three team experiences for you on our website, and I want to encourage you to go and check them out here before I launch into part two here. Uh, these are team experiences for you to actually begin to build some rhythms into your life. So one's on Genogram, the second one's on Sabbath, and the third's on a rule of life, which I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash team, emotionallyhealthy.org slash team, and you'll want to download these experiences for your team. It's like having me, basically, in your staff team or team meeting to kind of lead you into an exercise to not just talk about theology, but actually put it into practice around these three different themes, genogram, Sabbath, and rule of life. So check that out. So let's launch into this thing. So our, you know, our context, right? Gordon McDonald is, uh, was one of my mentors and for many, many decades, actually. Um, 
and uh, I rewatched an interview he did recent. Or I watched the interview he did recently in a podcast. And uh, no, actually, this was from an from a interview I did with him at church a few years ago while I was still lead pastor. And he said the comment, "Evangelicalism is exhausted," and he gave then a bit of a historical concept context for that. Evangelicalism, as we know it, is exhausted. And uh, he's referring really to a couple of things. One is that we've got this crisis of discipleship of you know people being one mile wide and a quarter inch deep. As one pastor said to me this week, uh, let alone think about discipleship in our church where the most committed people come perhaps twice a month, to even attend on a Sunday. I'm just worried about my children uh, and how they're going to stand and resist the beast and actually walk out discipleship with Jesus in the midst of a culture like this and a church culture like this. And I thought it was very very poignant that he would say it that way. And and then, of course, we have a crisis of leadership going on with, you know, kind of the numbers-driven, pragmatic, expedient, quick uh, discipleship of just being so concerned about growing. Uh, uh, you know, we've got scandals that just go on decade after decade. And I've seen it now for over 40 years, and uh, I don't suspect it's going to change, at least in our lifetime, because something so drastic is needed in the way that we do discipleship and formation of our leaderships. And so something is deeply broken, something is deeply needed, and I'm going to simply call it, we need a deep spirituality in and with and for Jesus. And we, we, we need a deep spirituality in, with, and for Jesus. And that begins with us as leadership. This is called the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And that's why your number one job description uh, as a leader, in particular, as a Christ follower, but as a leader in particular, is to be maturing and growing in your relationship with Jesus. It's, it's to be maturing and growing in Jesus, to be deepening your walk in and with and for him. That it's a lived experience, not simply head knowledge and skills and expertise. I think of two texts where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, or follow me as I follow Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's quite a statement for a leader to make. Follow my example as I follow Christ. And then in Philippians 4, 9, he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Think about that. Whatever you've learned and received and heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Again, it's that that... Uh, uh, modeling. So when I first caught this, and I, I put this in my job description, I, mean, I changed my job description to the number one item for 10 to 15 years until I got it so into me, I didn't need to have it written down, which was to be maturing and growing as a disciple of Jesus. Because it was so easy to put that second after all the work that needed to be done. And core to that growing and maturing as a disciple of Jesus is living out rhythms. As, and, and limits. It's one of the greatest challenges, if not the greatest challenges, uh, as, a, as a leader for Jesus because the pressure and the needs and the demands are so enormous. So, so that, again, it, it focuses that the purpose of our existence, your existence and mine, is to see the face of God. I mean, that's the whole aim of the spiritual journey. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century is one of the Cappadocian fathers worth looking him up, uh, talked a lot about uh, this, that the whole goal of the Christian life is to see the face of God. I mean, this has been a theme all through church history. We don't talk about it very much in the 21st century. Uh, but that when you come to Jesus, we see, we see a glimpse of the face of God in Jesus. And, and thus we come to Christ. And that the whole Christian life is one of growing and seeing him face to face. And 
uh, and Gregory of Nyssa talked about something called ecstasis, which is growth in Jesus is a lifelong, is lifelong in growing into progressing, perpetually uh, progressing and seeing him face to face. We're growing in that. And he wrote a whole book called The Life of Moses. And he traces how Moses, he saw God's face in the burning bush. Uh, and then later, it speaks about him talking as a friend to God, speaking with God face to face. But he, even at the speaking with God face to face, he, he talks about he wants to show me your glory and he gets to see God's back. Uh, but that when we when we actually die and, and, and pass over and see him face to face, uh, we will not see him fully, that we will spend all eternity seeing more and more and more of his face. Uh, in other words, we'll always be growing. Growing is, we were built to it, because if you saw all of God, we, you would be God. That's his basic thesis. Uh, so in a sense, we catch glimpses of God all along the way in our journey, seeing more of his face through scripture, his works, worship, our lives, community, beauty in the world, love, the poor. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God as we mature ourselves, we see more of God. But isn't it wonderful you think about that? We'll always be growing. Billions and billions of years from now, uh, we will be growing. So as leaders, we're, we're, we're modeling that, that my life is seeking the face of Jesus. And, you know, social cognitive scientists have talked about IQ, intelligence, and EQ, uh, emotional intelligence. But now they talk about a third uh, metric, which is CQ, which is curiosity quotient. And, and we are growing constantly in curiosity and learning about Jesus. And again, not just head knowledge, but lived experience. So we want to grow into being role models for the church. Now, not that we're perfect, but we're authentic, we're real, we're broken, we're vulnerable, we're on our journey. And not again, I don't want, I'm not espousing a legalism here, a perfectionism, because that's the last thing Jesus was about. But it's kind of a wide-hearted humanity and, and authenticity, but people need role models. We need role models and because role models enable us to, to step outside of who we are and, and we can look at others and we see kind of, and people can look at us and see the kind of changes that they can make in their lives and know it's possible and that it's actually, actually possible to change the story of their lives. Uh, and, and, and our first gift that we offer those we lead is our... our following of Jesus, uh, how we're actually doing it. And that's really what I'll talk to you about today. And, and let me just illustrate this with, a, uh, with why this is so important. I'm reading a book right now called Successful Aging. Uh, and, and the subtitle is A Neuroscientist Explores the Power and Potential of Our Lives by a guy named Daniel Levitin. He's a former professor at McGill in Canada University. But I'm reading because at age 63, I'm in my own journey of maturing in Christ. I want to flourish for him in the final third of my life. So he tells three stories at one point. He's talking about the importance of role models. And he tells a story of, of some people who are older uh, to offer us some ways of looking at what could be. So he tells a story first of Julia Hurricane Hawkins, who was a retired school teacher, devoted gardener, and she took up competitive athletics at the age of 75. Uh, she competed as a cyclist at the National Senior Games, won bronze and gold medals. But then 25 years later, she branched up and took up running at age 100. And again, at age 101, she set the world record for the 100-yard dash at 39.62 seconds. Uh, she competed in the 50-yard dash with other runners as young as 90, finishing in 18.31 seconds. And so again, again, uh, she writes, she says, I don't feel 101, I feel about 60 or 70. 
Uh, and then at age 102, Hawkins set a new world record for running the 60 meters in 24.79 seconds. And in, in June 2019, at 103, she won gold medals in the 50 and 100 meter races. He also gives an example of the guitarist Andre Segovia, considered the greatest guitarist in the world, uh, who launched a tour at 90, uh, uh, 91 years old, 93 years old. And one of his last interviews, before his death at 94, he said he still practiced five hours a day. And why? Because he, you know, he was considered the greatest living guitarist. Why is he still practicing? And he said this, there's still this one passage that has been giving me a little bit of trouble. And then Anna Robertson, better known as Grandma Moses, didn't start painting until she was age 75. And she continued, continued until she was 101. But her works are displayed at the Smithsonian, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, has sold for some over a million dollars. One of her paintings hangs in the White House uh, and was turned into a commem commemorative stamp, and she painted it at age 91. Uh, and then you got the whole story of Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken, who grew up uh, poor in Indiana, dropped out of school in seventh grade. By 17, he'd been fired from four jobs. He was a drifter. Uh, by age 50, I mean, he was basically, he never managed to hold a job or save any money. At age 50, he starts another job at a roadside eatery in Kentucky. He works there until it goes out of business at 62. There he is, 62 years old, broke, living out of his car. Uh, again, how many of us would have given up at that point? He never had a success in his life. Uh, and then one day, took an old family recipe and opened up a restaurant with some borrowed money. His name was Sanders. He, and the restaurant was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, he sold the company at 74 for the equivalent of $32 million in today's dollars. Today it's worth $23 billion. And again, just a great story. But they're role models, right, for anyone thinking about getting older. And if you can just transpose that for just a moment, thinking about the church, thinking about the people who sit in our, our pews or the folks sitting on your team, maybe you lead a parachurch or maybe you're in a business or marketplace, but uh, role models. And uh, the question is, you say, oh, I'm not a role model. I don't feel like one either. But we're on a journey, you know, and whether we like it or not, if we're leading even one other person, it could be your, your parent, you know, mom, you know, or a single mom or a dad. I mean, people are looking at you uh, as a model. And, and so I believe we need role models. Here we are. Um, and we're in leadership ourselves uh, in this post-Christian age with endless distraction. And I firmly believe that the, the best group of role models for us uh, for a deep spirituality which is what the world desperately needs is found in the desert fathers uh from the second third fourth and fifth centuries who they have been the foundation of perhaps the deepest spirituality uh of christianity for the last two thousand years and again just think for the first thousand fifty four years there was no eastern or western church protestant or catholic church just one church all the leaders pretty much or almost all, almost all leaders came out of uh, the deep spirituality of monks and, and hermits, and even up and up to the Refor then up to the Reformation as well, uh, globally, uh, and then today, if you look at writings, how many folks draw from the Desert Fathers, monasticism, even within the Protestant tradition, it's really quite amazing. And so the Desert Fathers uh, come from the, de the folks in Egypt and North Africa, Syria, Palestine, who began to flee the cities and villages uh, to seek God in the desert. And they saw so much of the idolatry in the world that was in the church, they fled to seek God's face in the desert, and uh, they eventually organized themselves into monastic communities. And uh, the description I love the best is the one from 
uh, Thomas Merton. Merton writes uh, that the, they, they saw the desert, first desert fathers and mothers, the world as a shipwreck from which each individual had to swim for his or her life. And to simply go along with this ship that was being tossed about by all the values of society was simply a disaster. And so they realized the only way they could help the world was to flee the world and get on solid ground with God themselves and, uh, and then pull the world with them you know, back to God, like a cleanse of the idols in their own heart so they could see the idols in the church and thus bring, you know, the life of God to the church. And again, the models of the desert fathers and mothers came from scripture. And it was a story, it, it, was, it was the life of Moses who spent 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead his people. And Elijah who lived in the desert and John the Baptist who lived in the, much of his adult life in the desert and then emerged. And then of course, Jesus who spent life in the desert. So they had a stream of, of historical, biblical, uh, people who, who who lived in the desert and out of which they led their ministry, that was a model for them. That was their role model. Uh, but they rejected popularity. They rejected being sensational. They rejected greatness uh, for God, you know, to be great and popular with God. Uh, in fact, the, 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 perhaps one of the stories I love the best is Anthony the Great, who's considered the founder of the Desert Fathers, who moved to the desert at the end of the third century to be with God in solitude. And when he emerged 20 years later, uh, people followed him to imitate his journey. And uh, they say it was just a, his, his being was extraordinary. But here's one of the things he wrote that I, I think is so true for us today. One of, the, one of his sayings is this, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like one of us. Uh, let me say it again. <laughs> a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad. You are not like one of us. I think it's so apropos for us today. In other words, if, if we can begin to embrace rhythms and limits uh, in the name of Jesus, people will look at us and say, that person's mad. Uh, you're not like one of us. The world is mad. And if, you actually, if we actually get ourselves right side up, you know, anchored in God, uh, We'll actually get sane, but people will think that we're mad because that's where the world is. And so it begins by seeing our identity and calling differently, that we're first contemplatives. Uh, and there's a monk living inside of you and inside of me that longed for our eternal future of seeing God more and more face to face. You know, Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. That is my life. That's David, Psalm 27, 4. Regardless of what your responsibilities are in life, that is our life. And so for that to be a reality, I need rhythms. I need limits. So for the Desert Fathers, they began to uh, form communities. And these communities built themselves around a rule of life. And this is what I think is, I believe, is a great gift for us today uh, to begin to structure practically our lives in such a way externally so that internally we're actually embracing rhythms and limits. Now, uh, a rule of life is an ancient Greek word. It's a structure or a rhythm uh, that enables us to pay attention to God in everything that we do. Uh, it enables us to find a desert, in a sense, in the midst of our activity in the cities in which we live in. Uh, and it comes from the Latin, Latin word trellis. And basically, it's a, it's a framework or structure to help us pay attention to God. And eventually, there's a number of rules that were developed uh, in the early centuries, uh, but eventually the most famous one, at least in the Western church, uh, is the rule of Benedict. 
uh, developed uh, in the early uh, 500s. And when the, when the Roman Empire was disintegrating, uh, had been overthrown by the barbarians in 410 AD, it shocked the civilized world, and it was a staggering blow to the morale uh, of citizens and, and, and morality, and the church was in a moral decline, had accommodated to the world, and he was, Benedict was shocked by it all and disgusted, and so uh, as far as he was concerned, morally, Rome was too far gone to be saved, and so he pulled out and developed a rule of St. Benedict and, and uh, it, uh, began to establish these monasteries actually established 12 near Rome with a with a with a trellis with a structure a rhythm of how to live their lives so they can embrace rhythms to be with Jesus out of which they did their ministry and actually his sister Scholastica also began her own her own community of nuns women uh, and uh, was, this has become one of the classics of Western civilization the rule of Benedict it stood it stood the test of time for 1500 years and tens of thousands of people around the world uh, follow the rule of Benedict. And so what I did in, in, in 2003 is I began to get exposed to different monasteries. Uh, I began to study rules of life and, and that communities would gather around all different types of community. And I actually collected them uh, for years. I had a big stack of rules and I, I was so, I, I was always looking at how, to, how can I apply this? I thought it was actually brilliant because in a sense, we have a rule of life, a way we structure following of Jesus uh, within the 21st century church. You know, we, we say go to church, have a quiet time each morning, uh, you know, tithe, serve with your gifts, make sure you're in a small group. That's our rule of life. And we say that's going to help sustain you in rhythms and limits of following Jesus. And, and I, I saw uh, very clearly that it is not sufficient. It is not a sufficient rule of life. It's very unconscious. And we need to be much more thoughtful, intentional, uh, and uh, a much more robust spirituality if we're going to actually have a deep spirituality. So I, I applied it in a number of ways, playing around with membership, pastoral staff teams. But I think one of the greatest applications of a rule of life is for our lives and our teams uh, as leaders. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a powerful tool and, and uh, in this in this rule of life idea to regulate our entire lives so that we truly preserve the love of God above all things. And so I want to introduce that to you here uh, today as we close, because uh, I want to invite you to actually construct a rule of life for yourself. You, you have one right now, but to step back and actually think about it differently uh, uh, with a structure. And, and so, uh, Again, I, I want to encourage you. To, I'm going to explain it right now. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to go to emotionallyhealthy.org/team and download one of our that, that's this team transformational experience around crafting a rule of life. It's got handouts in it. It's it's and and, and I'll lead you through it like as if I'm in the room with you. Uh, I'll explain it briefly. You'll have 30 minutes to actually fill it out. You'll have a nice sheet uh, to to use. Then you'll get in groups of two and three and talk about it, and I'll make some further applications on the video. But it's very simple. An hour, hour and 15 minutes, you can get yourself started. And it's a great start to get a framework for the rest of your life of building rhythms. Again, I want to, I don't know how to say this clear enough. Unless we get rhythms in our lives, our people don't have a chance. Uh, and this is a life and death issue. Uh, it, and it, it, it involves limits, embracing limits, because you can't do everything. And so what I did was took the, the Benedict's rule, and, and there's really four themes around it and to structure your a rule of life, prayer, rest, relationships, and work. And again, you'll see that 
in the handouts uh, at emotionallyhealthy.org slash team under craft a rule of life. Uh, because we want to create a culture. Do you understand? Church, church or community or teams, we're a culture that, be, that we want to be before we do. We want to go forward by slowing down. We want to create a culture of life, of deep spirituality that's actually visible. Uh, and so let me just mention a few comments about my own rule of life and, and things I have under my categories. Now, again, every Christian's different, unique, and needs a tailored personal approach uh, for their spiritual growth. And we each have unique pathways that God uses to help us grow into maturity. One size doesn't fit all. But again, I, I want to just give you a few of mine, and you'll see mine in that um, that team exercise on crafting a rule of life. I actually put mine up there. Uh, but here's some things I have in mind. For example, under you have four categories, prayer, rest, relationships, and work. The center of the categories is the love of God, receiving the love of God. I want to create a life where I'm receiving the love of God out of which I give the love of God. So under prayer, uh, I have things like weekly Sabbath, you know, daily offices, you know, studying the gospel, you know, every day in the morning, a day, a month, every month, a day alone with God, I journal, you know, under rest, I have things like I exercise five times, five to six times a week. Uh, uh, you know, I read broadly <clears throat> three to four months sabbaticals every, you know, seven, eight years, uh, seasons of therapy under relationships. I've got, you know, my wife, Jerry, engagement with my four daughters and son-in-laws and, and grandchildren, uh, staying in good communication with my siblings, et cetera, having a mentor, uh, then I've got some things under work. But, but I think most importantly, there's some presuppositions to what I put in that prayer, rest, relationships, and work boxes. Uh, and I've really, I have three or four I just wrote down here, and I think are important for you to think about as you fill that out. For example, the way to God, one is, the way to God always passes through self-knowledge. Uh, Evagrius Ponticus was, you know, one of the Desert Fathers and one of the great interpreters of the Desert Fathers, and uh, fourth, fifth century, and he wrote this, if you want to know God, you've got to learn to know yourself first. If you want to know God, you've got to learn to know yourself first. That without self-knowledge, we're in danger of having our ideas of God turn into projections. And so in uh, uh, my rule of life, towards that, I have things like spiritual direction, I've got therapy, seasons of therapy, ref lots of reflection, mentors, scripture, retreats. But because if we skip the difficult path of self-knowledge, we don't then address our shadow, our the inner monsters, uh, and uh, we're not of help to anybody. Uh, and so that's why we've got to work out an earthly spirituality in the context of everyday life, you know, and things like church and family and school and work and et cetera. And so that's one, uh, self-knowledge. The second is humility is a big theme for me, creating some uh, hang, ha things to hang on around to, that to keep me grounded, which is the way the word humility comes from. And those we, we and Benedict wrote about this, we ascend to God by descending into our own reality. In other words, we face our humanity, our feelings, our earthliness, and we contemplate and accept the truth about ourselves. And and because uh, we know that God leads us through weakness. He leads us through powerlessness. And when we're stripped of our own power, we meet God. And another theme for me is staying by oneself underneath the rule of life is the silence, uh, creating a cell, a, a place, a, a mechanism of, of being still before the Lord. And, and Desert Fathers actually had a physical building or cell, a small cell they would build in the desert. For me, it's my chair right here to my left. You know, I turn around, I look out the window. That's my cell, uh, one of my cells anyway. Just like a tree must send out its roots down to grow, 
we too have got to get alone with God and send our roots down deep. And uh, if we're going to mature as human beings, if we're going to grow spiritually uh, and have some depth to us, we, we can't grow into mature people without the courage to meet our own truth head on. Uh, and maturity requires quiet. It requires silence and stillness. And uh, an encounter with ourselves is a precondition for an authentic encounter with God. Again, we can't know God without knowing ourselves. So again, the way to God passes through self-knowledge. I got humility. I got staying with oneself in silence. I've got the, and then there's a place of community that I, 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 I need it. Uh, community breaks us. God meets us through it. And he, Jesus built us for it. And isolation is just deadly. And that may look different at different seasons of your life, different levels of community as you're, I trust you're part of a local church community, but even how that works out practically. But, but you need, and I need, uh, to be connected. I, I can't be isolated. And it's, a, it's one of the foundations of that rule of life. And so let me just close with two quick questions here that, that I, you know, many of you send me questions uh, along the way. And so what I want to try to do is begin to integrate a couple of them to the different podcasts. Uh, so here's one. When is ambition too much? How do I know if ambition is too much? And the answer very simply is this, it's gonna, it requires a deep spirituality. And again, I wanna invite you to, to begin to take that tool of a, a rule of life and craft one for yourself. Because if you can get that as a, a begin to intentionally structure your life, it become, you begin to be more discerning of your own heart and motives and activities and of your own consolations and desolations and the movements of the Holy Spirit inside of you and it begins to sort out. I don't think you can, sort out what's when is this coming from my own earthly ambition or from the mouth of god uh unless you've really engaged in a a walk with jesus where this is he is my life uh and then will i get anything done and the answer is oh yeah you'll get more done in less time with less effort uh i think of uh elijah receiving elijah's cloak just the cloak of elijah there was life in it when, when a dead person touched the bones of Elijah, they came alive. When, Je when they touched Jesus' hem of his garment, they came alive. He taught us one who had authority. In other words, it's our life is our greatest gift. Uh, there is no greater gift. So again, let me in encourage you, take the time, invest, let God change you uh, as you embrace rhythms and limits so that you might be a gift to your community. So again, send in questions that you've got at emotionally at info at emotionallyhealthy.org. And I'll, I'll try to integrate them along the way into various podcasts. So thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. I've really loved doing these last two podcasts on, podcasts on embracing rhythms and limits. And I'm excited to see you next week. So God bless everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.